that mic right there. Well, your mic sounds better than mine. What's the deal? I like the way your mic sounds. Amen. Well, lean over and tell somebody he's about to preach to you tonight. I can't wait to get into God's Word here in just a few minutes. Praise the Lord. Well, that old school thing got a hold of me. I don't mind telling you. I'm just barely in my 50s. You figure out the rest. <laughs> Somebody came up to me today and said, uh, I typed in your name and, and a song you wrote on YouTube and said, I heard somebody singing a song called He's Still in the Fire. Make me feel good and tell me you've heard that song before. Has anybody ever heard He's Still in the Fire? Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. If you want to have fun, go home tonight. Just type in He's Still in the Fire on YouTube. It'll pull up the good, the bad, and the ugly. Amen. I mean, it's on there. I, I'm singing on there. The Spear family who did the first recording of it, they're singing on there. I typed it in here a while back, and someone's made a cartoon to my song. That's right, little cartoon character singing He's Still in the Fire. Someone's done a puppet show to it. Someone has actually made a, what do they call those, a concept video, like a small movie to my song. One of the cutest things I've seen thus far, though, is a nursing home choir singing my song, He's Still in the Fire. That's the truth. They sing a while, then suck on oxygen for a while. But it's a, it, it is a great piece. But the one to beat it all, I was sitting at home not long ago, and I typed in, he's still in the fire, and, and I was so taken back by what I saw, I had to call Paula. I said, Paula, she was upstairs working. I said, come down here and look at this. Do y'all know what clogging is in Virginia? You know what square dancing is, right? Clogging is square dancing on steroids. That's right. And I typed in, he's still in the fire, and so help me, there's somebody clogging to my song. All you can see is from their knees down to their tap shoes, but they are, they're clogging to my song, and it, it is just something else. And I thought I have hit an all-time low with this right here. But I'm just glad I can be a blessing, whatever venue it takes. Amen. But uh, out of request, somebody requested that I sing just a little bit of this song. I think I've got a band up here that can hang with me. We, we, we're going to change keys a time or two, all right? Now, how many, how many know Southern Gospel is God's favorite music in the world? Let me, yeah, there you go. And all the young people sitting over here saying, God, help him get off that stage just as quick as he possibly can tonight. No, I don't know that it's his favorite. I do know this. I, I think he taps his feet to it. I mean, he likes everything else, but he taps his feet to Southern Gospel music. I'm just convinced of that. Now, don't hold me to that either. Amen. That's just something I like to believe. But, uh, you know, Southern Gospel's not real hard. I mean, if you can do this. You can write. And you can sing a pretty good Southern Gospel song. And if you really want to make it better, if somebody can just kind of clap their hands on that beat right there, it even makes it better. There you go. Now the problem with that is it's too, it's too slow for he's still in the fire. So we have to go. My mama read a story from the Bible long ago. About Shadrach, Meshach, and all of Bendigo. How the wicked king commanded they be thrown into the flame. 
because they would not bow and then deny their father's name. Raise the key. Mama said the king stood high upon a balcony so tall. When he looked in, he was shocked by all the things that he saw. Because he thought that he would find them lying dead upon the ground. But instead of three, he counted four up walking all around. Raise the key. I said, Mama, wait a minute. There's one thing that I must know. If three went in and three came out, then where'd the fourth man go? And I never will forget my mama danced across the floor. These are the words I heard her say while shouting through the door. She said he's still in the fire and he's walking in the flame. And he'll be there to help you when you call upon his name. And he can still deliver by his almighty power. While here below, it's good to know he's, well, she said he's still in the fire. And he's walking in the flame. And he'll be there to help you when you call upon his name. And he can still deliver by his almighty power. While here below, it's good to know he's in the fire well my friend you may be destined to face life's hottest flame but I'm glad that I can tell you through the power of his name not one flame of fire will harm you you'll come through it and you'll tell yesterday today forever God is still alive and he's well I know he's still in the fire and he's walking in the flame and he'll be there to help you when you call upon his name and he can still deliver by his almighty power while here below it's good to know he's still in the fire while here below it's good to know he's still in the fire oh how about that <laughs> how about my tenor singer back here did he do all right Tell you what, buddy, you something else. Uh, you better sit down. We'll take off on that one again. Amen. Oh, come on. How many want to hear it one more time? I can think of two CDs that's on back there at my table. Be sure and pick one up on your way out tonight. I'm getting too old and too fat. Sing one like that twice in one night. Here a while back, I, I got to blowing the dust off of some old stuff that years ago I used to listen to. A fellow by the name of Rusty Goodman wrote a lot of it. Anybody remember some of those songs Rusty wrote? Had it not been, wouldn't take nothing from a journey now, although who am I? Uh, this has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm about saying. It just came to my mind, thought I'd tell you. My, my youngest daughter, Tara, and her husband, Justin, they are youth pastors at the Summerton, Alabama Church of God, not too far out of Birmingham. So not long ago, we went to see them, and I don't know how I found out, but I found out that uh, when most of the Happy Goodman family passed away, their earthly remains were taken to a cemetery about seven minutes from where my youngest daughter lives in that, in that church, the Summerton Church. Down a long winding road, there is a, a church called the Bible Church of God. It's not a Cleveland church, but it's, it's a little Pentecostal church, and they call it the Bible Church of God. 
And, and in the back of it, there is this very well-kept, very well-manicured cemetery. And I found out that uh, most of the Happy Goodman family, uh, their earthly remains are there. Howard and Vestal are, are in Nashville at the Christ Church uh, Cemetery, and Sam is uh, in another location. But uh, Howard's uh, sisters, about four of them, uh, their, their earthly remains are there. Howard's old mom and dad, he was a, a Spanish-American war veteran. Uh, he, he's buried there, and his, and his mom, and uh, one of the younger brothers, and, and Rusty Goodman's earthly remains are, are in that cemetery. And so I've, I was raised on them. I mean, I, I was just raised on that music, and I, I wanted to uh, go see it and pay my respects to a family that had meant so much to me. They, they had Church of God roots, uh, Vestal was raised around Fife, Alabama, Sand Mountain, and it just just tremendous heritage there. And so I honestly wanted to pay my respects. That's the reason I went, the only reason I went. And so I'm walking out to the area where the, where the family plots are and uh, paying my respects. And I, and I come to Brother Rusty's tombstone, a very, a very, as tombstones go, a very nice uh, tombstone, very, very nice. And uh, down at the bottom of it, are the words, I wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. Isn't that neat? He had written that song, and there's a little etching of a trail going up through a mountain and some cedar trees, and down at the bottom, Don, it says, I wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. And so I'm just standing there having a moment. I mean, I'm having a moment. I was raised on their music, used to watch their show, gospel singing, jubilee, traveled everywhere to hear them sing, and just just having a moment. I got a, got a tear, you know, and just thinking about what they meant to me. And my lovely wife, Paula, walked up to me. And she knew that, that it was touching me. And uh, she said, uh, does that touch your heart, dear? I said, yes, it does, babe. It, it really touches me. I said, look, down at the bottom of his tombstone, I wouldn't take nothing from my journey now. That, that says a lot about life. It really does. She said, you know, you're a songwriter. I said, well, thank you for acknowledging that. My songs have bought you a lot of dresses and uh, helped send our kids to school. Thank you for acknowledging. You're a songwriter, she said. She said, if you go before I do, what a thought. I can't believe she would even think that. But she said, if you go before I do, how, how would you feel if, if we put one of the titles of your songs on a, on a tombstone? I said, well, that's, that's probably a nice sentiment. And I said, which one did you have in mind? She said, well, I was thinking he's still in the fire. I said, that doesn't work on a tombstone. <laughs> yes, it's my best-known song, but I just can't see it on a tombstone. I mean, I can just see somebody walking through a cemetery and seeing that. He's still in the fire. Well... Is this what you had in mind tonight, Pastor Gore, that, that I do this? Now, let me get back to something spiritual. Rusty Goodman wrote this great song. Really a, a well-known song, but probably not his best-known song, but I, I love it. When I think of how he came Hallelujah. so far from glory Came and dwelt among the lowly, such as I. Oh, yes. To 
suffer shame and such disgrace. Oh, Mount Calvary, take my place. I ask myself the question, who am I? Who am I that a king would bleed and die for? Who am I that he would pray, not my will? answer I may never know why ever loved me so that to an old rugged cross he would go for who am I you remember that sing it with me tonight. Do you love Jesus tonight? Amen. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30. I like what I feel here tonight. Whether you sing it Southern Gospel, out of a hymn book, contemporary, off of a screen, if it lifts up the name of Jesus, the Father sits back on his throne with a smile on his face, looks down upon his worshipers and says, I like that. I like that. So good to have Brother Mark Carey with us tonight. Thank you, Brother Carey, for coming to be in, and being in service with us. Some time ago, the Lord put in my spirit a thought that became a book, and it's out there. I call it the Amos Paradigm taken from a passage of scripture in Amos chapter 9 verse 13 the King James version of that says there's coming a time when the plowman shall overtake the reaper the treader of grapes him that soweth seed 
The message translation of that says that this is God's decree. Things are going to happen so fast your head will swim. One thing fast on the heels of the next. And everywhere you look blessings, you won't be able to keep up. That's basically talking about a time of great acceleration and favor upon the harvest. As soon as you can plant the seed, it's time to reap the harvest. Because God reaches in during this favored season and he extracts the struggle between seed sowing and harvest reaping. One translation of that verse basically puts it this way. The toe of the one sowing seed is on the heel of the one reaping the harvest. And he's tapping him on the shoulder, breathing down his neck, saying, if you'd get out of my way, I could plant some more seed. But as soon as he does, the one reaping the harvest has his toe on his heel, tapping his shoulder, breathing down his neck, saying, no, if you get out of my way, I could reap some more harvest. And it's talking about a time when seed sowing and harvest reaping literally overlap each other. Now, any farmer, any farmer understands that's not the typical way it works. A farmer understands you live and die by what the Bible says in Genesis 8. As long as the earth remains, there is seed time and harvest you know that you sow a seed you have to work water weed and wait and if everything goes right you reap a harvest but in Amos 9 13 God literally promises through this prophet an accelerated time of harvest reaping it's what I call life at the speed of favor and for the last three, almost four years now in world missions, we have seen life and harvest at the speed of favor. We can't sow the seed without turning around and already it's time to reap the harvest. Never in my life have I been a part of something so dynamic, so powerful. Harvest is being reaped around this world. And that also applies to you as an individual, to your family, pastor, to your church. I've seen it happen in my life. I won't take time to talk all about that tonight. But I have seen an accelerated season of favored harvest in my life, in my family, my children, so many areas of my life. But with that said, that does not take away the fact that there is an enemy to your harvest. There is a power, there is a force that makes it his business to try to hinder your harvest and stop you. God has a destiny for every one of us sitting here tonight. And there are times when one door will shut in our life and we know that God loves us enough that he will sooner or later open another door but often we find ourselves in the hallway between those two doors it's what I call in that book out there the hellacious middle the hellacious middle that means when you're in the middle of the hallway between where you've been and where God wants to take you the powers of hell try to fight you and hinder you and you find yourself dealing with and combating the swirling winds of 
controversy and conflict and complexity with all of the debris that those winds will batter around your head and you're wondering, God, where are you? Do you not love me anymore? Do you still have a plan for my life? And all of that comes with being in that hallway between where you've been and where you're going in your destiny. And my question tonight is, what do you do in that hallway? Sometimes when I speak about what I'm about to speak on and read from the Bible to you, I often call this message, What to Do on the Worst Day of Your Life. What do you do on the worst day or what you feel like up to this point may be the worst day of your life? Now, I'm about to read something very familiar to most preachers and a lot of the laity, I'm sure. I'm about to read something that happened in David's life. David and his soldiers had been on a brief military campaign. They had temporarily aligned themselves with a group that normally would have been identified as their enemy, but in order to fight a common enemy between them, they had aligned themselves together. But now all of that is paused and put on hold for a little while, and David and his men come back to what was at that time their, their home in a place called Ziklag. And they ride up upon Ziklag, tired and battle-weary. They want to see family. They want to see friends. They want a good meal. They want to rest and retreat from all of their labors and their battle but when they ride up upon their hometown, all that they see are the smoldering ruins of what used to be. And David's heart sinks, and the heart of his men sink, and they're depressed, and they're fearful, and they're worried, and they have all of these emotions going on at the same time. They're angry, they're full of vengeance, they want revenge, and they want it immediately. How many know that's a bad day? They rode up on their hometown and discovered they were bankrupt, their houses were destroyed, and their families were stolen all in one day. That's a bad day. But if you'll study this thoroughly, you'll discover that all of this happens 72 hours before David wears a crown. In three days, Saul will be killed. In three days from when this happens, the heir apparent to the throne, Jonathan, David's best friend, he will also die. David will ascend to part of his destiny. But three days before he gets there, the powers of hell come against him to depress him, discourage him, and keep him from walking into his door of destiny. And I say all of that to say this, that what you may be going through tonight really isn't about what you're going through. It's about what you're coming to. Oh, that's worth saying twice. The struggle the tears, the difficulty, the problems of your life that you are fighting and dealing with right now. It's, it's not about where you've been. It's not about where you are. It's about that God has a destined place for you. 
a place of celebration, a place of victory, a place of triumph. But your enemy, the devil, is doing everything he can to stop you before you get there with discouragement and deplete you of your resources and deplete you of your faith and deplete you of your trust so that you just give up in the middle of the hallway and say, what's the point? What do you do on a day like that? Well, let's follow David's example. Let me read some of this to you. I won't read much of it, but in 1 Samuel 30, it's so familiar. It came to pass in verse 1, it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire. They had taken the women captive that were there. They didn't kill any of them, either great or small, but they carried them away and went on their way. Listen to verse 3. David and his men came to the city and behold, it was burned with fire. Their wives, their sons, their daughters were taken captive. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. Have you ever cried like that? I mean, have you ever wept until you were exhausted in the weeping? The agony of it all. The stress of it all. They wept until they were exhausted in the weeping, until they had no more power to weep. Let's skip to verse 6. David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved. Every man for his sons and for his daughters. I love this. But David encouraged himself and the Lord his God. Sometimes you got to do it for yourself. I'm preaching better than anybody shouting tonight. When you can't find a singer to sing you out of it, you can't find a praise team to praise you out of it, you can't find a preacher to preach you out of it, sometimes you got to have enough in you of whatever it takes to just do it for yourself. David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. He didn't have to be coached. Nobody had to pull him out of it. He said, I can do this for myself. Go all the way through the chapter. Look at verse 17. Verse 18, David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. Verse 19, there was nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither spoil nor anything that had been taken away. There it is again. David recovered all. Father, bless the reading and the preaching of your word tonight. In Jesus' name. So the question is, what do you do? on the worst, worst day of your life. Without any further introduction, let me just get right into it. David gives us an example. On the worst day of your life, you weep. On the worst day of your life, it's all right to sit down and have a good cry. Now, I'm going to tell you something that most likely you're not going to hear on Christian television. I didn't come to bash Christian television. I like Christian television. I show up on it occasionally and give money to it sometimes. But I doubt anybody hears what I'm about to say on Christian television. Because the last time I was on Christian television and said this was the last time I was on Christian television. And here it is. Weeping is not inconsistent with faith. Did I say that in a way you can get it? Weeping is not inconsistent with faith. 
Now, there are people that will tell you that if you have faith, there are no tears. If you have faith, there is no suffering. If you have faith, there is no sorrow. I understand all of that. But I also understand that I have traveled around this world. And while I stand here tonight, there are faithful men and women who are working hard and diligently in God's kingdom, doing a great work for the kingdom of God, winning souls to Christ. But some of them are in sorrow tonight. Some of them are struggling and some of them have difficulty tonight, but they are the most faith-filled people I've ever met in my life. Weeping is not inconsistent with faith, but the truth is you can't stay there. Weeping is all right. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Abraham wept when Sarah died. Peter wept when he realized that he had denied the Lord. But while weeping is part of life, it's part of our DNA, we cannot stay there. It is the beginning of the healing process. And the truth is that while weeping endures for the night, joy comes in the morning. It's all right to weep. It's all right to cry because it begins the healing. It initiates the healing that God wants to bring into your life. I'll never forget it. I walked into a hospital room one day to visit our church custodian. He had gone into the hospital to have knee replacement surgery. I walked into his room after they had just put him back in bed from taking his first walk after surgery. I've never seen the contorted looks on someone's face like he had on his. Tears were streaming down his face. He was in obvious pain, and I made the mistake of saying, Hey, George, how's it going? He came just short of cussing me. They called me preacher over there in Danville. He said, I'll tell you how it's going, preacher. He said, I thought I had pain before the surgery, I thought I had pain during surgery. But he said, I've never known pain like I've known just a few minutes ago when the therapist came in here and they lifted me out of this bed and the weight of my body moved down through those knees. I screamed, I yelled, I said, throw me back in that bed. Don't lay me in it, pick me up and throw me in it. But he said, preacher, the therapist kept saying, George, can't do it. We got to walk today. He said, they walked me to the door. When I got to the door, I reached out and grabbed that door and the facing around it. I yelled. I said, I'm not going any further. It hurts too bad. Throw me back in the bed. But he said, the therapist kept saying, can't do it, George. You've got to walk today. He said, they literally pushed me out the door. He said, when I got out into the, into the hallway, they said, now make, make a few steps. You don't have to go all that far, but you've got to make some steps because, George, if you don't walk today, infection can set in. And if infection sets in, it'll go to your heart and kill you. You've got to walk today. And he said, preacher, let me tell you what else the man said to me. He said, George, the truth is sometimes it just hurts to heal. When he said that, I reached for my pen. And I reached for a piece of paper on the little table sitting there, and I'm writing. He looked at me so aggravated. He said, what are you doing, preacher? I said, George, today's Saturday, tomorrow's Sunday, and I don't have a sermon, but I just got one. Sometimes it hurts to heal. (laughs) 
And I came by to tell somebody sometimes it does hurt to heal, but healing is coming. I came by to help somebody with the load of grief that you've been carrying tonight. It's part of the healing process. The Bible said we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmity. Not just the fact of our infirmity, but the feeling of our infirmity. Jesus knows how it feels to hurt, and he knows how it feels to suffer. But I came also to tell you that while we have that kind of high priest who is touched with the feeling of our infirmity, the result of that is we can come boldly under the throne of grace and there we can obtain help and find grace to help in time of need. I tell you what, I feel it on me here tonight. What do you do on the worst day of your life? Weep. But secondly, you wait. The Bible said that David called for the priest ephod. That basically means he waited on direction from the Lord. Now understand, he's got all of these soldiers breathing down his neck. They're recycling vengeance. They want instant revenge. David's lost his wife, but they've also lost their wives. David has lost his sons and daughters, but they too have lost their sons and daughters. And to just stand there and let time go by without some kind of reaction is not satisfying these men. But David is wise enough to know that what is needed here is not impulse. Oh, i got to preach right here. What is needed here is not a panicked reaction. What is needed is a prayerful response. Lean over and tell somebody he's going to preach to you here in just a minute. You see, I dare say that most every one of us here tonight have been in circumstances before when those around us, with their voices and their opinions and their attitudes, were urging us to do something. They didn't know, we didn't know what to do, but the attitude was just do something. You can't just stand here. Well, I want to tell you, sometimes the wisest thing you can do is just stand there. Tell you what, my mama would be proud of me the way I'm preaching tonight. Just stand there. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. David understands from his encounters with God and his experience with Jehovah. What is needed here is not a panicked reaction. But I need to make a prayerful response, and that begins with understanding what is the good and the perfect will of God. So the Bible said he called for the priest ephod. Now, now calling for the priest ephod was that Old Testament way that they employed from time to time of getting direction from God. Because the priest ephod usually came attached with it was the priest breastplate that carried the 12 stones. And there were times, depending on how God would direct and lead, those stones would illuminate. And depending on how all of that happened, they received what they believed was direction from God. Now, we have the power of the Holy Spirit and the leading of the Holy Spirit. So we obviously don't depend on that in these days and times. But the point was, David wanted to hear from God. So he gets in God's presence. And he has some questions for God. David had such a relationship with God that he understood God is not afraid of my questions, number one. Number two, he's not offended by my questions. God's not afraid nor offended of your questions. 
And I'll just be transparent enough to tell you there have been a few times that I think we've all had questions when we get down before God. And David said, God, here's my questions. Number one, shall I pursue this troop? I mean, look at this, Lord. I can, I can rebuild a house. I can make the right investments and gain my treasure back. But that's not what's motivating me. Oh, I need to preach right there. Folks, I'm not motivated by losing a house. I'm not motivated by losing treasure. But when Satan sets his hand against my family, my spouse, my sons, my daughters, my grandchildren, that's what motivates a child of God. When you understand that that and those who have been entrusted in your care have been attacked by the enemy, it will motivate you to pray and it should motivate you to fast and seek the will of God. Because it's not God's will that any should perish in your family, but that all should come to repentance. So God, I've got to know, shall I pursue this truth? Got hundreds of voices speaking into my hearing. I've got their hot breath breathing down my neck. They're pushing me, and I've got to come to, to a conclusion. I myself, the fleshly part of me, I know I want to react to this, but what do you want me to do? That's the first question. But the second question, and its answer is more important than the first, God, if I do this, are you going to go with me? If I get up and go, do I have the assurance? Do I have the confirmation that, Lord, you are with me? And I, I, I hear inherent in that question this, God, I'm not going to do this by myself. I can't win if I do it alone because I know in my past I've tried to go too far on too little. I've tried to do too much without you. And I'm kind of like Moses said one time, God, if you don't go with the children of Israel through this wilderness, I would just as soon be found dead right here if God doesn't go with us. I came by to tell you tonight, we need the Lord's help in all that we do. And God responded to David. He said, the answer to question number one is pursue. The answer to question number one or number one is pursue. The answer to question number two is I am with you brush yourself off David dry your tears get up and go get your family because I the Lord God am with you I came by to tell somebody get up and brush yourself off get up and dry your tears get up and go after what the enemy has stolen from you because God is with you and if God be for us who can be against us greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper get up and pursue because God God is with you. Somebody clap your hands to God in this house. What do you do on the worst day of your life? Weep. Wait. But then worship. Worship. Are you out of your mind, preacher? In the midst of my crisis, conflict, controversy, my kids are gone, my wife is gone, house is burned down, treasure is stolen, and you have the audacity to tell me to worship? Where is there room for praise? Where is there room for worship in all of this? And while I'm at it, I'll just tell you that while you were reading your text in Psalms 1 Samuel 30, 
I didn't see the word worship in there. I didn't see the word praise in there. David's in a crisis. I don't see room for praise. I don't see room for worship. The word isn't even there. You're right. The word isn't there. But the results are. Because the Bible said David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And that's how you get there. I believe David stood up and it dawned on him, wait a minute, because of God it hasn't always been this way. And because of God it won't always be this way. Where I am right now is just where I am right now. What I'm going through right now is just what I'm going through right now. It hasn't always been like this. And it won't always be like this. You see, David was a songwriter. He wrote most of the book of Psalms. And I think at least in his mind, his heart, and his spirit, he just began to replay and rehearse some of the lyrics of those songs. He said, there's one I can sing, page 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He flipped the pages and said, Oh, there's one I can sing. Bless the Lord, O oh, my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh, my soul soul and forget not all of his benefits who healeth all our diseases and forgiveth all our iniquity. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Oh my soul while I live I will bless the Lord his praise shall continually be in my mouth from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. The name of the Lord shall be praised. Oh magnify the Lord. David said wait a minute did I write that? Oh magnify the Lord. Where was I at when I wrote that? Oh, magnify the Lord. That's what's wrong. I've been magnifying the wrong thing. I've had the magnifying glass of perception and perspective on my trouble. I've been looking at how great the Amalekites are. I've been looking at how bad it is my house is burned down. I've been looking through the magnifying glass of perception of, of how bad it is that my wife is gone and my kids are gone and, and i got soldiers that are ready to stone me because I'm not moving fast enough to please them. I think if I reposition the magnifying glass of my perception, I'll get a better outlook on this. So he said, oh, magnify the Lord. He turned it around and began to see how great God was and he determined God is bigger than any mountain I can or cannot see, bigger than any problem I can or cannot solve. He's greater than my problem He's greater than my fear. I came by to tell you, you've been magnifying the wrong thing. You've been magnifying the wrong situation. Turn your magnifying glass of faith and hope upon Jehovah God who said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. But I'll be with you always, even to the end of the world. Somebody praise him. I'm going to take a praise break. You're invited to do it with me if you'd like to. Somebody praise the Lord in this house. David encouraged himself. Nobody else did it.
He did it for himself. I had to do that not long ago. I walked into my office at World Missions one Monday morning. And what was odd about it, 24 hours earlier, on a Sunday, I had been in a great church somewhere. Choir was full of praising, singing people, audience, congregation, praising, worshiping, singing. It was one of those rare epitome moments, zenith moments of a full expression of praise and worship that ushers in the glory of God. I'm, I'm kidding you not. It, it felt like the very glory of the Lord had settled in on that congregation. And I preached on praise and worship that morning. I mean, I had it down. I had it down. I had my one-liners down with a huh in between. I said, there's two times to praise God, huh, when you feel like it and when you don't, huh. I said, you can praise or you can pout, huh. You can sing or you can sigh, huh. You can worship or you can worry, huh. You can magnify or you can moan, huh. I had it down. Rapid fire, bullet speed. I mean, I'm just spitting all that stuff out there. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then I got to preaching about David bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. How that Micah looked out the window and despised him in her heart because while she loved him as a king, she hated him as a worshiper. And the Bible said that he put on the priest ephod and he danced before the Lord with all of his might. And I got this singing choir behind me and this shouting congregation in front of me and I'm in between and I heard myself say these words, there's deliverance in the dance. There's still deliverance in the dance. And I'm telling you, when I said that, I had no sooner got that out of my mouth that that crowd behind me started dancing. The crowd in front of me started dancing. The only one not dancing was me. And I thought, fool, you better join them real quick. I don't know what kind of moves I was making, but I started making some. And we were all dancing before the Lord. I'm telling you, the joy of the Holy Ghost got in that place that morning, and we were having church. But 24 hours later, I'm walking into the offices of Church of God World Missions in Cleveland, Tennessee. I don't know if they heard me drive up. I don't, think, I don't know if they heard the little ding, ding, ding on the elevator when I got off the elevator. I don't know, but they knew I was there. And Sister Kelly, they knew I was there, and they come running for me. Out of every office, out of every corner, behind every door, out of every shadow, somebody came to tell me bad news from every direction I could turn. I mean, before I could get back to my office, someone said, you need to know what just happened in Zimbabwe. I mean, that's not like this just happened across town. We're talking Zimbabwe. Somebody else said, you might want to know this, this missionary was arrested and they've confiscated his visa. Somebody else said, well, you, well you, you might want to know they've shut this orphanage down and, and, and we got to do something today. 
And I mean, in 183 nations of the world, it just seemed like trouble had erupted everywhere. I couldn't get to my office fast enough. I mean, I ran. I mean, all this hit me in the hallway. I ran, John, to my office. When I finally got there, I'm just, I'm just staring at, at an empty desk, looking at the wooden grain. Nothing there, just, just the wooden grain. And I'm just staring, staring, focused on nothing but wooden grain. And this oppressiveness came on me. This heaviness came on me. And I said, Lord, Lord, you've got to help me. I can't function like this today. It's heavy. The weight of the world has has fallen on me. I, I can't function like this. And I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit prompted my soul And I I believe I heard him say these words. What did you preach yesterday? And I said, you know what I preached? I preached on you can praise your way out of a problem, sing your way out of sorrow, worship your way out of worry. And I'm telling you, he said, well, why don't you do that now? And I said, now? Here? We don't do that here. We're prone to worry here. I mean, I'm paid to worry. And I heard the Lord say, well, then do it your way. So I just went back staring at my desk. About five more minutes, I said, I'm sorry, Lord. I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I can't do this. I, I can't function this way today. He said, well, what did you preach yesterday? I said, you know what I preached? I preached on there's deliverance in the dance. And I'm telling you, as clear as a bell, I heard in my spirit, he said, we'll do that now. I said, now? Here? We don't dance at general headquarters. Here? I said, I can't do that. He said, well, then do it your way. I said, my way don't work today. He said, well, you might want to try mine then. I've got two doors that come into my office, one over here and one over here. I looked around, made sure both of them were shut and locked. I pushed myself back away from my desk in my little chair, and I did a 360 to make sure no one had snuck in on me, and I didn't know about it. And when I came to the conclusion the room is empty, the doors are locked, I feel like a fool, but I'm going to do this. I raised myself up out of my padded chair, And folks, right then and there in my office at Church of God World Missions, I started disco dancing. I sure did. I started disco dancing. I'm not talking about that 1978 John Travolta stuff. Staying alive, staying alive. These young people over here don't have a clue who I'm talking about or what I just said. Isn't it amazing how quick old happens? Look it up on the internet. John Travolta, disco dancing, staying alive. It's all there. But that's not what I'm talking about. 
When I talk about disco dancing, I raise this leg and said, disco here, and this leg and said, disco here, and disco here, and disco here. I want to tell you, I felt like a fool. I didn't have any rhythm, but the longer I did it, the better I felt. Pretty soon, the glory of God came down in that office like I feel it coming down right now. Somebody pounded on my door and said, Bishop, are you having a breakdown? I said, I'm not having a breakdown. It's the first breakthrough I've had all day long. I came out to tell somebody, there's still deliverance in the dance. There's still victory in the praise. There's still power in the worship. On the worst day of your life, you've got to praise God and encourage yourself in the Lord. Well, pardon me while I shout. Just a, I just felt the Holy Ghost right there. Somebody praise him. just felt victory in my soul right then. Well, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Somebody praise him here. I'll tell you what, something just broke loose in this house. Somebody back here ought to praise him, praise him, praise him. Brother Kerry, when you get back to Roanoke tomorrow, tell Bishop Merkovich you learned how to disco dance on a Sunday night. And when he wants to know what do you mean, just say the right leg, disco here, disco here. What do you do on the worst day of your life? Weep. Wait. Worship. But then you go to war. You can ignore it all you want to. Play like it's not there but it'll still be there tomorrow because passivity doesn't work. Once God gives you direction and says, pursue, I am with you, that's the signal that I'm going to war. And Brothers and sisters, I'll try to shorten this up, but I need to tell you, there's too much in this Bible about the warfare we're in to make me believe it's anything else. It's not a cakewalk. It's not a Sunday school class party. This is war. When our nation is on the brink of cataclysmic destruction. There's no other way I can say it. I can't brighten that up for you. I can't make that look prettier. It's war. 
The intimidation of the enemy is so strong against pastors and against churches today that anymore many are fearful to stand behind the sacred desk and proclaim the truth of God's Word for fear of not being politically correct and offending the special interest groups and having pickets in front of your church. I'm sorry if that offends anybody here tonight, but I'm telling you that's the truth of where we are. It's war. And let me, let me just touch on something here. It's not your houses. It's not your treasure. It's your family that's at stake. It's war against the minds of our children and our young people. It's a war for their soul, their spirit, and where they spend eternity. We've come to an age of a confused identity in this world. This whole thing about same-sex marriage that was legally embraced a few months ago, among other things, is another strong indicator to me that the church finds itself in the midst of a raging war for the souls of men and women. Pentecost anymore in so many places has been so diluted and watered down that a 30 to 45 minute sermon anymore in some places, not all, but in some places, is more of a psychological review of how to win friends and influence people. And I'm okay and you're okay. Let me tell you something. When I came to Christ, I wasn't okay. I was not okay. I was on my way to hell. It was war then, it's war now. And that's why this Bible tells us that the weapons of our warfare are not of this flesh. They're not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down. Study that out. The pulling down or the obliteration of strongholds. It's not peaceful coexistence. It's not detente. I'll leave you alone if you'll leave me alone and we'll just get alone together. It's the pulling down, reaching up into the heavenlies over your city, over your family, over your marriage, and literally finding what that stronghold is in, in that heavenly realm of the second heaven and pulling it down, obliterating it in Christ's name. That's why the Bible tells us that we put on the whole armor of God. You take it on. It's not a suggestion. You take it on. It's not a request if you want to do better in life. It's, 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 a, it's a command. Take on the whole armor of God. Cover your head with the helmet of salvation 
protecting your thought life. Keep your heart pure with a breastplate of righteousness, hiding behind the shield of faith. Your loins gird about with truth for integrity's sake. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace to steady your steps. And for a sword, the sword of the Spirit, praying always in all prayer and supplication, praying in the Holy Ghost. It's war. Unlike any we've ever faced. Because it's a spiritual war. Behind everything you see in the flesh, there is a spiritual encounter going on. Go all the way back to the book of Daniel. Where the messenger angel that finally came to Daniel said, I would have been here before now. But I had to stop and whip a devil. The prince and the power over Persia had established such a fort and a stronghold over that area of the world that on its way to bring deliverance and answers to Daniel's prayer, Michael said, I had to stop and deal with that principality. But I told the group that was here this morning something I learned about warfare. Oh, I feel this. God help me finish this. I told the people that were here this morning, and I'm, I'm going to repeat some of this tonight. I learned something most valuable about warfare. Sitting on an airplane one day, reading my Bible about King Jehoshaphat, how three enemy kingdoms converged upon him at one time, and the Bible said really not only those three, but even others were coming against him. But a little preacher fella, by the name of Jehaziel, standing on the shoulders of four generations of spiritual heritage, not just history, but heritage. My. I forgot how good it was to preach here. There's a depth, there is a vein of anointing in this church. I don't know if anybody understands. There, there is a vein of anointing through this region right here. I came in contact with it the first time 30-something years ago when I came through here and was preaching revivals all over this. There is a vein of anointing in this region of Virginia unlike most places I travel to. There is a depth here. And this preacher standing on the shoulders of heritage going all the way back to Asaph who was a worshiper that wrote some of the Psalms. He stood up and he said, I've heard from God. And King Jehoshaphat, the Lord wants you to know it's his fight, not yours. Ready yourself. Put your armor on. Dress up for the fight. Go down in the valley. You'll, you'll find them down there. But when you get there, you need to know before you arrive, the battle is the Lord's. And I'm sitting on this airplane reading this. 
And I gave more detail this morning about it. I won't give tonight. But I'm sitting on this airplane reading this. And I had myself a spell at 33,000 feet in the air. Honestly. It was so much of one that the drunk man sitting beside me asked me the question, are you from another country? I guess I'd been speaking in tongues. Because revelation came to me. When I read what Jehaziel said when he told King Jehoshaphat, you've got to go down to the valley, you'll find them there, dress yourself up, set yourself, but when you get there, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord because here's what came to me. I may have to face it, but I don't have to fight it. Raise your hands and praise him right now. God just gave that revelation to somebody. You may have to face it, but you don't have to fight it. God will fight your battle. He's the warrior of warriors, the champion of champions, and he's come to take charge tonight. He's come to take over, and he will fight this battle for you. Oh, stand up. i got to stop. I preached too long tonight. Stand up.